Good morning. Last week, we started off a series on the deeply formed life, and we were looking at practices and rhythms and tools that we could encourage into our lives to form deep growth. We did this because it's New Year's, because we recognize that this is naturally a time when people are taking stock. They're thinking about their priorities and relationships and goals and where their life is at. And so because of that natural rhythm, it felt like this was a nice time to take a step back from maybe a more typical sermon series and take a few weeks to look at some of these practices or rhythms or things that we could incorporate into our lives in order to encourage deep growth. Uh, Because we live in a world that by virtue of its pace, by virtue of its focus on wealth, money, material things, uh, by focus on success or or self-preservation, tends to encourage shallow formation. Uh, And there's a danger that this shallow lifestyle where we look for easy answers, where we try to feel good without having to change or to give up anything or to make difficult choices, that that sort of formation can creep into the church as well. And so we want to intentionally take space to become and to recognize the need to be deeply formed people. We want to be anchored in something deeper than the world around us. And this series is built off of the book, The Deeply Formed Life by Pastor Rich Velilis. He's a pastor in New York. And so I encourage you, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into this, if you're appreciating uh, what I've got to say through these sermons, he has a chance to get much more deep into some of these concepts. He's got more ideas that I can't cover. We've got 20 or 30 minutes here to go through this. And so if this is something you're appreciating, uh, encourage you to check out that book as well. Uh, if any of you did pick up the book, you're going to notice that we're jumping around a little bit. So we started last week on looking at the importance of slowing down, the importance of finding quiet time, silent time to be with God, the importance of meditation and how that can actually be a God-honoring, God-filled thing, despite maybe what some of us have learned about meditation in the past. And so this felt like it was a natural second step to take. Uh, today, we are going to be looking at the need for self-reflection. The practice of self-examination is what it's called in the book. And now, Pastor Jesse, I hear you say, doesn't it say in Philippians that in humility we are to consider others more significant than ourselves, or that we are not to only look to our own interests but the interests of others? Isn't the Bible over and over again calling us not to be self-centered, instead to focus on our neighbor, or to focus on our brother or sister, or to focus on each other? And to that I say, absolutely, you're entirely correct. Uh, the Bible is countercultural, it's counterintuition, it's counter our natural inclinations, and in that it calls us to be radically others focused, to be radically sacrificial, to be radically um, in service of the people around us, to be humble and to be meek and to be servants of all. And so then, as we get into this, this is my question for you this week. Uh, Last week, you did a great job of responding. That was uh, encouraging. It was a fun thing to do together. So I've got a couple of questions in this sermon. Uh, This first one's going to be a little bit tougher. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it up for a little bit longer. Your screen's not going to be frozen, I promise. It's just some space here to answer this question. Uh, I'm going to pause it for a little bit so we can reflect Uh, And if you do a good enough job here, you're basically going to preach my sermon for me. So that's a bonus as well. We can all go home early or, I guess, turn off our computers in our homes. But the question is this. Why is it spiritually important to be self-aware? Why is that important? Why does it matter if we're self-aware? 
uh, bonus points if you can think of scripture or situations in the Bible that call us to self-awareness or that represent self-awareness. So that is the question. Let's take uh, a couple of minutes here and discuss. All right, welcome back. Our world thrives on others' examination, doesn't it? I, I know I'm often referring to social media through these things, but it's right there. It's low-hanging fruit, and it perfectly represents what I think we're talking about here. In this time of disconnection, we spend a lot of time on it, and it has the potential to form us in some significant ways. And social media is built on, in so many ways, others' examination on on looking at or poking at or snooping at the lives of other people and especially it seems these days of judging or attacking others of jumping on people when they say uh, or do something that we disagree with when they have an opinion that we don't agree with uh, and when they've made a mistake hey Siri when they've made a mistake when they uh, have legitimately done sinful or hurtful things, social media still becomes this very poisonous place where there's no room for nuance, there's no room for dialogue. It becomes very, very much a place to attack and to become outraged and angered and to posture and to make sure that you appear as better than the people around you. Uh, I follow Phil Vischer on Twitter. Phil is one of the co-creators of VeggieTales. He's the voice of Bob the Tomato. And uh, he runs a podcast and a few other things where he speaks out about some of these very tense issues that are facing our world right now. And in my opinion, I don't agree with everything that Phil says all the time, but he does it with respect and with grace and with openness. But he's not afraid to make some strong points. And people don't always agree, of course, with what he says. And this is what he tweeted. He said, sometimes I post something on Twitter and people say, hey, Phil, I'm not sure I agree. Then I post that same thing on Facebook. And within about 60 seconds, people are throwing furniture. Facebook is nuts. We are great at going after others. But as theologian Ronald Roheiser warns, the air we breathe today, the world that we live in, is generally not conducive to interiority and depth. We don't live in a society that is built around interior examination. And a symptom of that is the way that we react to people around us. Because we don't understand ourselves. And so therefore we don't generally have a lot of control over our emotions, over our reactions, over what's going on in our heart and our brains. Uh, a helpful analogy, this is an analogy that gets used all the time, but it's a good one. It's so simple, it's easy to understand, is the idea of an iceberg. Every person is aware of themselves at a certain level. Your external actions, the choices you make throughout the day, you understand your relationships, you understand kind of your basic value system. But underneath the surface is a much more mysterious, but also much more substantial truth. There is so much going on inside of us that we don't think about. And that's true in a physical sense, uh, right? I'm not, I'm not constantly thinking about my, my heart beating or my stomach digesting or my nervous system firing or my pupils dilating. Uh, and I'm certainly not thinking about my, my cells dividing or my immune system attacking foreign bodies in my system. Uh, there is all this stuff that is going on inside of me that I'm almost completely unaware of unless I really put some thought into it. We understand that physically, but it's also true emotionally in ourselves. We have emotions and tensions and things from our past and memories and traumas and hangups and neuroses and quirks and habits and genetics that form 
this lower part of the iceberg that for so many of us, we give no thought to at all. More than that, psychologists have dug into what makes us tick as people. And as they've done this more and more, they've discovered that we're more complex than previously understood. Uh, David Benner, a professor of psychology, writes that genuinely transformational knowing of self always involves encountering and embracing previously unwelcomed parts of self. While we tend to think of ourselves as a single unified self, what we call I, I is really a family of many part selves. And that in itself is not a particular problem. The problem lies in the fact that many of these part selves are unknown to us, even though they are usually known to others, we remain blissfully oblivious of their existence. So what Dr. Brenner is saying is that we're not the same person all the time. As Shrek the Ogre from that kid's movie once famously said, we have layers. As you learn more about yourself, you realize I have my thoughtful self and I have my childlike self and I have my competitive self and I have my cautious self and I have my life of the party self and I have my just want to sit and read a book self. There, there are many different pieces that make up me and often we're unaware of these different pieces. Christian spirituality, Brenner continues, involves acknowledging all of our part selves, exposing them to God's love and letting him weave them into the new person that he is making. To top it all off, Rich Velotis writes, many of our days are strategically and subconsciously constructed to avoid looking below the surface. And in fact, there are many situations in which religion has been a disservice to us, where religious systems have actually fought against what would be healthy, where religion has sometimes been repressive or discouraging of examination of our inner selves, where religion has dismissed introspection or self-awareness. They've said that's vanity or that's self-centeredness or that's narcissism. And, and they've called us to repress or to, to push down or explain away the lower part of the iceberg. And they've done this with Bible verses and they've done this in the name of respectability. And possibly some of you who are listening have, have are coming out of that life, have lived that life, have lived that tradition, uh, believing that as Christians, we are called to repress, to ignore, to stuff down, to not allow ourselves to feel certain things or to think about certain things. And that's not to say that every thought we have and every feeling we have or emotion or reaction or impulse is good or should be fostered or embraced. Not everything about us is good all the time. But we should never be afraid to dive down and to examine to seek to understand what's beneath the surface. And it's only as we shed light on these things and we understand these things, it's only as we embrace our humanness, these inner worlds that we have, that Jesus can help us change those things and rebuild those things and repair those things that are broken. That those roots of the Holy Spirit can be allowed to grow deep and can begin their work in us in a new way. So that's all well and good. We've had our psychology lesson, but... What does the Bible have to say about this? How is this modeled for us in Scripture? Great question. Let's start with the Psalms. The Psalms uh, throughout uh, the entire book model introspection and self-awareness and connectedness and, 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 uh, and a connectedness to the interior self in beautiful ways. But maybe the most clear exploration of this 
uh, and how God is connected to this process of self-reflection and self-awareness um, is Psalm 139. And we don't have time to go through the whole psalm, but it's a familiar one to many of you. And I want to pick up on a few pieces of the psalm. I want to draw out a few key moments in them. So first, verses 1 to 3. I want to read here. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David is overwhelmed with gratitude and with satisfaction because God knows him and claims him. God knows it all. The sadness and the joy, the fears and the lusts and the hopes and the dreams. God sees the good in us and he sees the bad in us, and he sees the ugly in us. God knows us thoroughly. Um, it's incredible to me. It's a sign of David being a man after God's own heart that he celebrates that truth. That, Well, actually, that's the other question that I have for you today. How does it make you feel? How does the idea that God knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, make you feel? Does it make you feel relieved, embarrassed, accepted, Fearful of rejection? Does it make you feel understood? What emotions come up as you're thinking about this? It's a bit more of a personal question. So you're welcome if you want to to respond in the chat, but you're also welcome to just ponder on your own for a moment. Let's ask this question together. How does knowing how does God knowing every detail about your life make you feel? We're going to continue with verses 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And the depths there, the word for depths is the Hebrew word sheol. It's the word that they use when they're talking about hell. From, from our highest highs to our lowest lows, God is with us. It's an amazing thing. David says, you are present with me. You are fully here at all times. Uh, David continues in verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David speaks to <clears throat> the creative love of God, our former and our maker and the, and the, and the masterpiece that we are in his hands. Uh, the whole psalm really is built to celebrate and recognize God's knowledge of humanity, his deep, intimate understanding of us. But something kind of neat happens because by the end of the psalm, David recognizes that although God knows him perfectly, he in fact doesn't know everything about himself. He doesn't know himself perfectly. And so in words that draw us to interior focus and confession, he writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, show me me. Often our prayers are, uh, and they rightly should be, Lord, show me you. Show me your glory. Uh, it's the great prayer of Moses in Exodus 33, verse 18. But 
that prayer needs to be complemented with this humble and introspective prayer. Lord, show me me. Show me myself. John Calvin highlights this, saying that the knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. We need both of these things. In order to understand who God is, we must also understand ourselves. As we continue, I want to take a look at four different biblical statements that speak to the importance of self-examination. So, the first one is this, examination before coming to the Lord's table. This is a verse uh, that many of you will know. This is a verse that will have caused many of you to take a half a half a step or a half a breath before you've engaged in communion. Uh, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, and in this passage, Paul is highlighting the urgency of self-examination when coming to the table for communion. He notes that Christians have been coming without taking time to reflect on their ways. There's this fundamental split between the sacredness of the table of what we're doing in communion and the flippancy with which people were approaching it. And Paul warns that judgment has come to this congregation because of their lack of examination. It's a sobering thought. Second, uh, examination of faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Here Paul urges the church to pay careful attention to their lives and determine, are we living consistently with the truth of God's abiding presence? This call for examination requires thoughtful reflection on our outer deeds and on our inner life. Third, examination of our ways. Uh, Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. This verse arises out of a particular moment of judgment and exile. Jeremiah laments that the people of God are living mindlessly, caught up in their own ways, and he calls all of us who are God's people back to a careful examination of our ways. The fourth example is this, an examination of our work. Uh, in Galatians 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul explains, he says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Some of you, undoubtedly, have been hearing me speak, and there is tension in your heart. Some of you, some of us, have significant pain in our past. We have things that we don't like to think about. We have traumas that hurt too much to touch. We have places in ourselves. We have doors that have been closed so long we don't know if we want to open them again. Things that we try to pretend don't exist. Some of us have things in our past, mistakes that we have made, things that we have done that we struggle with, that we feel are wrong with us. Things that are unhealthy, things that are embarrassing, things that feel unmentionable, that feel too weak or too secret or too raw to bring up. Uh, and to that, I want to say two things. First, counseling and therapy and appropriate medications are God-given gifts, beautiful gifts that God has given us to work through things in safe ways. And if you are thinking of the lower part of your iceberg, that 90% below the surface, and it feels too big or too scary or too painful or simply too mysterious and distant to process on your own, 
please, please don't hesitate to come to me or to Pastor Darren or to Aaron or Pearl. We can sit with you and we can help you process or we can help you find the right counselor or the right program or the right therapy to work through these things. We're available. We're just a text message or a phone call or a walk away. It's what we're here for. And it's bigger than us too. We have a caregiving team and many of you have been paired with mentors in our church over the years that you've walked with. It's a huge part of what the church is built for. What we are meant to do is support each other in these things. The second thing I want to say is this. No matter whether you're walking this journey on your own or in a therapist's office, uh, Jesus is there with you. Uh, there's this beautiful quote from Andreas Ebert that sums up what that means for us in this beautiful way. Many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up in their own abysses. But Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In the light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of healing. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has been there. We don't need to dodge ourselves. David reminds us that God knows our own hearts, our own journeys, our own highs and lows, from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. He understands it all already. And more than that, Jesus himself has lived that life as a human. From heaven to hell and everywhere in between, there is nowhere you can go. There is no stone that you can overturn. There is no secret that you can tell that Jesus doesn't already understand and know completely. And God, who is love, whose every step and every action and every breath is love, is there with you every step of the way. So, deep breath. I want to leave you with an exercise for the week. Just like last week, this isn't about adding something difficult or another rule to follow or another thing to your long checklist. What this is, is it's meant to provide a tool where if you feel that this is an area you could improve in, this is something you want to grow with, here is one way to go about that. Again, uh, Rich has a lot more to say about practices and ideas to help us develop self-awareness and introspection, but this is one tool or idea that I connected with here. One symptom of not being very connected to our inner selves, one clear indicator of that, is having oversized reactions to things and not understanding why. Having outbursts or too large emotional responses to situations that really didn't deserve that level of response. I'm sure you can identify with this. Uh, I tend to think of myself as a level-headed, easygoing guy, but I absolutely have this happen to me from time to time. Aaron can certainly attest to that. But one of the things we can start doing to teach ourselves more self-awareness, to teach ourselves to do self-examination well, is to, when these moments happen, pause. And if you're anything like me, you're going to have a hard time pausing right in the moment. But as the moment passes, when you have time to process, stop and ask yourself some questions. And if you're the journaling type, 
write down the answers to those questions. I think it's really helpful to get this out on paper, especially as you begin to establish this rhythm, as you practice making this a part of your life. But these are the five questions, simple questions. What happened? What am I feeling? What is the story that I am telling myself? What does the gospel say about this? And what counter-instinctual action is needed? So let me give you an example from my own life. I didn't have this tool at that time to process this, but I think the example still fits nicely into this framework. Uh, when I was in college, I worked part-time at McDonald's uh, in, the, in the back, flipping burgers, and there was a co-worker there. Let's call him Ted. I honestly actually can't remember his name, but I remember the way he made me feel. Um, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I generally get along with people. I like people. I did not like Ted. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Ted actually never did anything to me. He was generally a good guy. Uh, but something about the way he talked, it was like he was trying too hard to be funny. It was like he was trying too hard to be the coolest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the room, that he was just gracing you with his presence as he showed up. And every time I thought about him, I just got angry. What a jerk. Ted, to be clear, probably had no idea how I felt. Uh, but internally, I would just see that him from my corner of the kitchen. If I saw his name on the shift list, I would prepare myself to get frustrated and annoyed. I'd wind myself up before the shift ever even started. I hated Ted. And what eventually happened is that through processing and through prayer, I realized why he bothered me so much. He reminded me of myself. He was behaving in a way that I worried others perceived me. In my subconscious, when I saw him, what I was thinking was, is that really how I come across? And it made me angry because I was insecure. And so if I map this experience across those questions, it goes like this. What happened? Well, Ted told too many jokes at work instead of paying attention to the grill. It felt like he cared more about being popular than doing a good job. What am I feeling? I'm feeling shame as I see a reflection of my insecurities. It has nothing to do with Ted. What's the story I'm telling myself? In the, deep down, the story I'm telling myself is that my value comes from how popular I am, how much people like me or enjoy me. What does the gospel say about that? Well, first, my value isn't defined by how others view me. My value has been bought and paid for by Christ's sacrifice. I am found in him. Second, Ted is made in the image of God, and he deserves my respect. Five, what counter-instinctual action is needed? Buy Ted lunch sometime. Sit down and get to know Ted, the real Ted. And obviously, given the fact that I can't even remember this guy's name, I didn't do that. I didn't ever get to five in this process. But if I had stopped and prayerfully asked these questions, it would have been a great way to rationally, thoughtfully, prayerfully walk through my emotions and go, what's really going on here? What's really happening beneath the surface? And the more we ask these questions and the more we process these emotions, the more natural it becomes. The better we get at taking a breath, at diving below the surface and seeing what is really going on in our hearts and our minds. And the incredible thing is that as we begin to understand ourselves, that truly allows us to be able to see others. Jesus understood this as he called us to remove the logs from our own eye that would allow us to objectively, truthfully, honestly see the specks in each other's eye, in the other's eye. 
It only takes a few minutes on social media to see that the world is in desperate need of people who are willing to examine their own selves before examining others. The work of other examination comes all too naturally. We are accustomed to viewing and judging and comparing and reacting to others rather than ourselves. That's easy. The way of self-examination is hard. But by God's grace, the Spirit can help us. Amen.